I invite you this morning to turn again to Paul's letters, letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. We continue our, our series. Our text this morning is the verses 19 and 20, but we will read from verses 10 through 20 for context. Galatians 3, verse 10 through 20. This is the word of God. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now we come to our text. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today you will be receiving new office bearers. The brothers Jeff Decker, Philip Newman, Brody Plug, and Jamie Vandeross will be ordained to the office of elder, and brother Fred Bosfeld will be ordained to the office of deacon. We should be profoundly grateful to the gifts that the Lord gives to this congregation. You really can't take that for granted. When you talk to people who serve on the mission field or even people who serve in small churches, one of their biggest problems is finding men who are suitable for the offices. That's a constant headache, sometimes even a heartache. So when men display these qualities, 
and when they are willing to accept their appointment to office, we should be profoundly grateful to the Lord. Having reliable office bearers to shepherd the congregation is absolutely essential to having a stable congregational life. But where does the stability come from? The mandate in the form for ordination says that, quote, the task of the elders is, together with the ministers of the word, to have supervision over Christ's church, that every member may conduct himself properly in doctrine and life according to the gospel, end quote. So that makes it sound like the role of these office bearers anyway, these office bearers anyway, is to maintain law and order in the church, law and order. And to some people, that's what the main function of an office bearer is and should be, to keep the members in line. But look at the rest of that sentence. It says, The task of the elders is, together with the ministers of the word, to have supervision over Christ's church, that every member may conduct himself properly in doctrine and life. And then look at what the rest of it says, according to the gospel. It says that every member should conduct himself properly in doctrine and life. So that's law, to, to make sure that people conduct themselves properly in doctrine and life. But then it also refers to the gospel. For the last number of months, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. In doing so, we have really had to wrestle with this relationship between law and gospel. Sometimes when you read Galatians, it almost sounds as if Paul is downplaying the law. You might start to wonder, well, why have the law at all? In today's text, we'll see the answer to that question. And getting this answer right will help us to understand what the office bearers are supposed to do in the congregation, and it will help us to understand how the congregation is meant to receive her office bearers. So this morning we will consider the gospel from the perspective of the question that Paul asked in verse 19, why then the law? And we'll see that the law serves two functions, to point out sin and to point to grace. So if you look at verses 19 and 20, our text today, it's a short text, probably one of the shorter ones that we've had to deal with. It's also one of the most difficult ones in the whole letter of Galatians. The, the Apostle Paul was writing to people who had already heard him speak previously about a lot of these things. So he could assume that they knew what he meant when he referred to something briefly. We obviously haven't had that same experience, so, so that means it's sometimes hard for us to understand what exactly he is getting at. But the basics in this text are clear. Paul has been contrasting the law and the gospel, he, he's been doing that constantly in this letter. He's been contrasting the Old Testament law as you find it in the moral, civil, and ceremonial regulations. And he's been contrasting that with the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Now, when we, when we think Paul's thoughts after him, we need to make sure that we don't separate these two, law and gospel, completely. Because the law does contain gospel. Think, for example, of the preamble to the Ten Commandments. It begins with gospel. It begins with God promising himself to his people. 
He says, I am the Lord your God. And consider also that the gospel is that we are set free to serve God and that later on Paul himself will remind us how to keep in step with the Spirit. He does that in Galatians 6. So he's not throwing out the law altogether. So this is what we need to get right. When we're talking about how someone is saved, the answer is crystal clear. The law has absolutely nothing to do with it. We are joined to Christ in faith. His life becomes ours. So when Christ died, we died with him, so to speak. And the law has no jurisdiction over people who are dead. When Christ was raised, we were raised with him. But here's the question then, what sort of life are we raised to? We were raised to a new life, a life lived for him and out of his power. And you won't know what that life is supposed to look like without reading and studying the law of God. So the law of God is still of utmost importance in our life. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the law itself has not changed. What has changed is how we stand in relation to it. Now the reason Paul wrote to the Galatians is because there were people who had gotten that wrong. See, these people were teaching you can be saved by faith, for sure, But to them, faith primarily meant obedience. You obey God's law. So to them, it is faith plus works. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It is always faith alone. Christ did all the work. What you do comes afterwards. God is the one who saves you, who transforms you through his word and spirit so that you can give your life back to him out of thankfulness. And so it's with that perspective in mind that we need to read our text this morning. Paul has just finished explaining that the inheritance comes by a promise in the previous verses. God has made a promise. The only way you receive what is promised is by by believing him. That's faith. And the law cannot do that for you. The law cannot make you right with God. The law cannot give you the Holy Spirit. The law cannot give you the promised inheritance. All that the law can do is curse you for disobeying the lawgiver. And that curse is so absolute, it is so thorough, it is so comprehensive, it is so all-encompassing that the only way it could ever be lifted from us is through the death of the Son of God himself. So everything we've heard so far about the law is negative. And so you might imagine somebody asking the question, well, Why then the law? Why did God give something to his people that is so powerful and so deadly? What was the point? And here is where where we look at verse 19. Here Paul says, it was added because of transgressions. And that must have been obvious to his readers, but when you read this the first time, it's not at all clear what he means. It was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? So, when we look at a verse like this, or or in this case, part of a verse, it pays to, to 
to look very closely at each individual word. And it's interesting here. One of these words is transgressions. Why did he pick transgressions? It's a strange word to use, don't you agree? There, there are at least a dozen other words that he could have used. He could have used a word like sin, disobedience, wickedness, all sorts of other words. He didn't use any of those words. He specifically chose the word transgression. That's not actually all that common in the New Testament. Now, maybe you don't really see the point, but you believe, do you not? All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. And if all of Scripture is God-breathed, then that means the individual words are God-breathed as well. The order of the words is God-breathed. Every part of it is significant. And the individual word used here was transgression. It was not something else. Why is that? What does this word transgression actually mean? If you think about a word long enough, eventually it starts to look strange to you. You start to wonder, what does it mean to transgress? Well, it's got the word trans in it, which means to to go across. So transgression means to step across, as in to step across a boundary. So in that sense, there is no transgression unless there is a rule to break. For example, lots of you drive to Byford regularly. You know there's construction going on there right now. Roadworks. You might drive through a construction zone like that on the highway. What's the speed limit in a construction zone when you pass workers? It's 40 kilometers an hour. But imagine now that the roadworks have only just commenced. The workers have not yet put up the signs. So you know that speeding past anyone who's, who's walking along the side of the road is, is unsafe. But until an actual sign has been put up, you are technically not committing any transgression. transgression. You could plead ignorance. But as soon as you see that big sign put up with the, the number 40 on it and a big red circle around it, then you have the opportunity for transgression. Then there is a specific law in that time, that place, that you can transgress. And the Mosaic law worked in the same way. So Paul is saying that the law was added because of transgression. So now we know what the word transgression means. Now we think of because. Why because? Well, to understand that, you need to take a step backwards and ask yourself, what was the law for in general? Why did God give the law in general to his people? One reason was to control sin, because Israel was not meant to be like the other nations. Israel was meant to be set apart. That's what it means to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart. But because they were sinners, the law was imposed on them to control their behavior, to make the dividing line really clear through all of the regulations. So so one reason was to to control sin. Another reason why the law was added was to deal with sin when it happened. The law contained punishments for transgressions. It also contained the whole system of sacrifices to deal with with sin. So there was a way that the law was also given to deal with sin when it happened. 
Undoubtedly, both of these reasons, the prevention of sin and the remedy of sin for sin, were in the background. But then when you look at this word, it still doesn't really make sense, does it? Because the law was added because of sin. Because of transgressions, I mean. Because of transgressions is a, is a strange f- phrase. And when you think about it a bit more, and then compare it with what he wrote in Romans later on when he had more time to, to unpack his thoughts, then you begin to understand what he means. What he means is that the law was given to make sin worse. It was given to make sin worse. It was given because of transgressions in the sense that now that you have the law, you start to see a lot more sin. And that actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Let's go back to the roadworks example. Imagine that the roadworks have commenced and the workers are just starting to put up the signs. But you haven't seen the workers yet because um, they're having their morning smoko. So the workers are not in sight. Technically, you are already driving through a construction zone. Technically, you should be slowing down to 40 kilometers an hour. Technically speaking, if you're going faster, you are breaking the law. Now, you have not realized it yet. But once they put up those signs, you know for sure. The sin of speeding looks so much worse when someone drives double the limit past one of those 40 kilometer an hour signs. Then sin is revealed for the blatant act of disobedience that it is. And in that sense, the law makes sin worse. So sin, the law shows sin to be sin. And it does more than that. It also aggravates sin. Sometimes the very existence of the law makes you want to break it. For example, maybe you're driving through this construction zone on a weekend. What is your first thought when you see the speed reduction sign? You're driving through Byford on a a Friday night and... You see the 40 kilometers an hour sign, there's no worker in sight. What, do you, what, what is your natural inclination? It is to keep on going at your normal speed. You think, why should I slow down? There's no one around. And, and you might even feel a sense of irritation. In that sense, the law has made you want to break it simply by existing. The law has made sin worse. Not because something is wrong with the law itself. The law is good but it's because we are inclined by nature to push up against boundaries. So that's what verse 19 is suggesting. It's suggesting the same thing. It is suggesting that we, that the law was added because of transgressions. A transgression is when you deliberately break the law, not by ignorance, but by a deliberate transgression of God's commandments. That's why the word transgress is important here. That word suggests that there is a line, that you know what the line is, and that you deliberately step over it. And Paul writes about this in Romans 3, verse 20 as well. In Romans 3, verse 20, he says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 5, verse 20, he says, The law came to increase the trespass. So the problem is not that the law itself makes you sin. The problem is that by nature we are so sinful. 
We are so sinful that as soon as God puts a, a law in place, a boundary in place, we want to push against it. Paul refers to that in Romans 7, verse 13, when he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So, the problem is not with the law. The law was, it says here in our text, the law was added. Who added it? Well, God did. Anything that comes from God is good. This, the law expresses the will of God. The law is good, but sin within us rebels against everything that is good. And now the law, by its very existence, shows that in, in full technicolor. It shows us exactly what sin is. It shows us how sinful we are. It shows us our, our urges towards transgression. That's why the law was added. To restrain sin, to raise awareness of sin, and to show us in full measure, how sinful sin really is. Now nobody can say that they didn't know anymore. Now, now, the, now it is obvious to all people. But do you understand now, dear brothers and sisters, why the law itself could never bring salvation? The point was never to bring salvation. It can't do that. That's not what it's for. The law is there to show us how much we need salvation. It was a temporary measure to point us to Christ. It was added, says Paul, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And we looked at that last time. The offspring, the seed, as it says in the original language, is Christ. What was the original promise that God made to Abraham? Genesis 12, verse 3, he said, And you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we saw that, didn't we? That the blessing was land and descendants. That those blessings were not significant for their own sake, but for what they represented. The land represented a place to enjoy God's presence. Descendants represented the fellowship of God's people. God intended to fulfill those promises through Jesus Christ. God promised him a people to redeem. A people with whom he could spend eternity in the presence of the Father. In John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In John 17, verse 2, he says, He will give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him. So God promised these people to Jesus. Jesus came to redeem them, to spend eternity with them. So all of these promises, they were not just promises to Abraham. They were promises made to Christ. So, to, to say that you need to keep God's law in order to be saved, which is essentially what the Judaizers were saying, is a complete misunderstanding of, what, of the whole scheme of salvation. The law is about Christ. It is about what He did, what God did through Him, what God does in us to become like Him, which is something much greater than law-keeping. He intended to bring them all along. And think about this. When he gave the law to his people, he already knew what was going to happen. He knew that they would break it. He knew that the exile would happen. He knew that Jesus would be crucified by the descendants of these same people, and he still went ahead and did it anyway. 
Now that's grace. And from that perspective, the law is inferior to the promise. That was reflected in what happened when the law was given. Look at verse verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And now look at this. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Another cryptic line, fascinating. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What is he talking about? He's talking about what happened at Mount Sinai. It was put in place through angels. The New Testament suggests that angels were present at Mount Sinai, that they were involved in giving the law. You don't need to go to the Apocrypha for that. You can see that. In Acts 7 verse 53, Stephen refers to the law as delivered by angels. Hebrews 2 verse 2 says that the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So apparently angels were involved in some way in handing over the law to Moses. Moses was not the only one. In Revelation 1 verse 1, we read that an angel was involved in giving the revelation to John as well. Why does Paul make a point out of mentioning that now? Because it highlights two things. First, it shows God's majesty. God is surrounded by myriads of angels Daniel 7 verse 10 refers to 10,000 times 10,000. It's it's the biggest number that you can imagine. Surrounded by myriads of angels who obey his every command. He's a, a glorious, holy, sovereign ruler. That, that, some of that glory was reflected at Mount Sinai when God came down in fire. And the presence of angels, that's the second bit. The presence of angels shows God's holiness. God is different from us. God is surrounded by these angels. God is unapproachable. There's this vast gulf, divide between God and man. So without a mediator, he is unapproachable. Our text says that the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Clearly the intermediary or mediator in this case was Moses. The law was put in place through angels by an intermediary by Moses. Maybe the angels gave the law to him and he passed it on to the people. But the point being made here is that the law is inferior to the promise because the law was given via angels and Moses in some way to the people, but the promise was given directly. Now, we should remember that when thinking of these office bearers. By nature, we tend to focus on law, even as church members. The law is deeply ingrained in us. We still have the rumble of Mount Sinai echoing in our ears. And maybe we pick and choose our law sometimes. Maybe, maybe as church members, we might have slightly different views on particular aspects of the law, like, for example, how to keep the Sunday holy. But all of us feel that, that our faith is still somehow wrapped up with the law. So we like 
an office bearer who, who was all about law. We want our office bearers to lay down the law, to keep the church in line, to tell people how it is. That's what we want from our office bearers. But the law was just a temporary measure to show the sinfulness of sin. So an elder or deacon who only points out your sin but does not point you to grace, does not point you to Christ, has failed. And so have you, a, a regular congregation member who only wants to talk about what consistory is doing about all sorts of issues but is not open to discussing the work of grace in their own life, has failed as well. Now, please don't misunderstand. We are not suggesting that an office bearer should never talk about sin in your life. They should. And you should give them the opportunity to do so. Never underestimate your own sinfulness. We are so sinful that we are even able to use this as an excuse. People will say that sometimes. My elder only ever talks about law and judgment. He's so negative. Well, maybe he's actually trying to bring you to a point where you can recognize God's grace in your life. Maybe he's trying to do the very thing that the law is supposed to do, to point you to your sin and then to point you to God's grace from there. To point you to the mediator. But if, if, if you're never willing to talk about your sin, if you're never willing to discuss these issues in your life, if you're never willing to be confronted, then how are you ever supposed to get to grace? Christ is to be central in all of our discussions about the law. Christ fulfilled it completely. Christ paid the penalty that it prescribed. In his death, all of the claims of the law are satisfied. And in that sense, our relationship to the law has changed. But it would be wrong to say that the law is now irrelevant. We are no longer to offer animal sacrifices because of Christ. We are no longer purified by the blood of animals because of Christ. We are no longer subject to the civic rules that Israel was because we live in a spiritual kingdom, but the law is still very relevant to us. We are not antinomians. An antinomian is someone who lives without the law. And there are Christians nowadays who, who do believe that. They live as if God's law does not apply at all anymore. And practically speaking, that means that they live as Christians, they claim to be Christians, but they live as they please. But here's the thing, you don't always see that, because living as they please might overlap with the life that is expected from a Christian. But they're the ones driving the boat. As long as their life overlaps with what a Christian life should look like on the outside, they are indistinguishable from the real thing but they do not live in true submission to Christ. The fact is that the law is still very relevant. The law still embodies the will of God for our lives. This is the will of God, your sanctification, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. If you want to know the will of God for your life, it's simple. Sanctification. Progressive increase in Holiness, a living toward God, if you want to put it that way, in all aspects of life. And 
Paul writes about that in Galatians 6. He prescribes exactly what a Christian life is supposed to look like. He's not saying that this is optional. The law always was the expression of God's will. We should respect it accordingly. But you should always remember this one key thing. The way you belong to God's kingdom is not by keeping the law, but through faith in Christ. And that was how people in the past were saved as well. They believed in the Christ who was to come, the true believers. We believe in the Christ who has come. Then the law describes how people in that kingdom should live, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in that way. So the law points out our sin, but it also points us to grace. We're going to look at that next. So in verse 20, the apostle makes another comment related to what he said in the last verse. He had said that the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Then he goes on to say in verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And again, one of those cryptic things. What does that mean? An an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And it's as if he's saying to us, you know, this is obvious to you, right? An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And we look at that and we say, well, this is not clear at all. What does he mean? Well, again, you've got to break it down. If you break the, the verse 20 down into two parts and teach, treat each part as a separate uh, statement, then they both make sense individually. It only gets difficult when you put them together. So he says, he says an intermediary implies more than one. That's a first statement. That makes sense. He's saying when you have a mediator, you have to have more than one person involved. That's obvious, right? If there was only one person, you wouldn't need a mediator. You don't need a mediator to talk to yourself. And even if you have two people that are playing on the same team, so to speak, um, they don't really need a mediator. They can talk to each other. So, so that part is obvious. And the second part is obvious as well, that God is one. There's maybe, maybe an echo here of, of the Shema, the, the Jewish professional faith. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So God is one. That part makes sense as well. It becomes hard to understand when you put these two statements together. It's almost as if he's trying to imply something that should be logical to us, but but it isn't. It's almost as if he left out the middle part of the argument. What is he getting at? And here, the connection makes sense once you start to think about the broader context. Context is a promise that God made to Abraham and by proxy to all believers. So he's contrasting the law with a promise, and that's always underneath the surface here. The law is very different. The law requires two parties. The law requires the lawgiver and the people. You could say, say in a sense, the law needs both of these in order to work. It can only be fulfilled if both of these parties cooperate together. As soon as people disregard God's law, it stops being effective in their lives. And, of course, there are consequences to disobedience. But, but it's also obvious that the boundaries imposed by the law are meaningless if people pay no attention to them. 
If you drive 60 or 80 past the 40 sign all the time and nobody enforces that, then what's the point of having the sign? Then it becomes meaningless. So in that sense, the law always requires two parties. It, always, it also requires an intermediary, someone in between like Moses to, to interpret and to mediate the law. And the contrast to that is that God is one. So what this is saying is that the promise did not require a mediator like Moses. The promise did not require distance between God and the people. And the promise is completely unconditional. When God made his promise to Abraham, he did it directly. There was no thunder. There was no lightning. There were no angels. It was just God speaking to man. And the promise didn't depend even on Abraham's faith. Abraham was called to believe, but God's promise always came first to him. God's promise remained even when Abraham didn't always respond appropriately. Think about Genesis 15. You remember that, that, that passage, another one of these fascinating Old Testament passages where God literally cuts a covenant with Abraham. God is the one who goes through the halves of the animal. God formally ratifies his promise. God makes his promise of land and descendants to Abraham. And what happens in the very next chapter? Chapter 16, Abram tries to fulfill this promise the human way by taking Sarah's servant Hagar as a concubine and sleeping with her. But God doesn't cancel his promise to Abraham because his promise is unilateral. And that's the point. The promise is true whether Abraham believes it or, or not at that point. The same is true for us today. God is unchanging. His promises are always true. We can always rely on them. We can always count on them. We can always depend on them. The promise never changes. Although the law was temporary, the promise is rooted in the unchangeable character of God. It's, it's rooted in His unchangeability. And that means that, that we can have confidence because just as Abraham knew God personally, we can as well. We do not need Moses to bring it down from the top of Mount Sinai. We have Christ himself who spoke the promise to us directly. He says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. By the way, there is a very subtle assumption of the divinity of Christ here. Paul is contrasting Moses with Christ. Moses was an intermediary. God is one. God speaks to us directly. And now some of you might think, well, is Christ not an intermediary as well? He is. But he is also God. And God is one. And so Paul is assuming the, the unity of the Trinity here. It's in the background of his theology. And in that sense, Moses and Christ are very different. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says in chapter 3, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. He says Moses, Moses was faithful, but he was a servant. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. God wants to point us to his grace. He uses his word for that, including his law. He's going to use these men to bring that word to you. Focus on that. Honor them as the Lord's representatives. 
Give them a chance to do their work in your life. And consider the privilege of receiving a home visit. What a privilege to get a home visit. When else will you get to talk about God's grace in your life in this way? Who else will ask such probing questions? Who else will lead you to a deeper self-examination? And what a privilege to be an office bearer. You get to bring God's grace into the lives of people, His people. God has worked in your lives to to get you to this point. Now you will receive the opportunity to, to do His work in the lives of His people. Could there be a greater privilege than that, than to be an office bearer? May the Lord always continue His work in us and through us. May He always point out our sins so that we can turn to Him. And may He then always point us to His grace. Amen.